At the risk of putting everyone to sleep in the first 30 seconds of this sermon, I'm going to give you a little grammar lesson. So how many of you love grammar? Would you raise your hands? Wow, more than one. I am shocked. (laughs) For all the rest of you, there'll be a test. (laughs) Now, so the Bible, the New Testament was written in Greek. In Greek, as in romance, other romance languages, every verb, and I'll use the verb to walk as an illustration, comes in a singular and plural form um, of the first person. So that would be I walk or we walk, first person. Second person, you walk or you all walk. So the Greeks were from Texas, I think. So, or third person, he or she, or plural, they walk. So in, in Greek, the verb intrinsically indicates the subject. So a pronoun isn't necessary like it is in English. In Greek, it's the verb that changes form depending on the subject. In English, the verb usually stays the same, but the pronoun changes. So I walk, you walk, they walk. But if a Greek reader wanted to make a statement emphatic, he could combine the pronoun I, you, he, whatever, with the proper verb form. And that's what John does to transcribe Jesus' I am statements into Greek. He uses the pronoun I with the I am verb in the first person. So it comes out something like I, I am. Two words, I, I am. Now, why the grammar lesson? Because in John's gospel, the transcription of Jesus' I am statements with that, that very emphatic I, I am was meant to convey something important. Readers who knew the Bible would think of one of the the Old Testament's most famous scenes in which God called Moses and commissioned him to be Israel's deliverer from Egyptian oppression. Moses found that assignment daunting, I mean, who wouldn't, and began to ask about contingencies. Uh, For example, he said, what am I supposed to say, God, if somebody asked me who sent me, if the, the Israel's leaders asked me this? And God's response to that question is regarded as one of the central passages of the Bible. God told Moses, tell them, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. So it's Jesus' repeated use of the emphatic I am statements in John's gospel, an intentional echo of God's self-revelation in Exodus In some of the texts, to be honest, it's doubtful. Sometimes I am just means I am. But in other texts, it's all but certain. So John 8 is a case in point. Jesus is engaged in that chapter in a heated debate with some opponents in Jerusalem. Only it's not really a debate because his opponents aren't exactly debating. They're insulting him and assassinating his character. They say he's crazy. They say he was born illegitimately. They call him a Samaritan, which to them was a rude insult, and they say he has a demon. Jesus, in response, says that unlike them, the patriarch Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and I'll quote, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he saw it and was glad. Now, his opponents think that's the craziest thing they've ever heard. Are you saying the great Abraham, who died nearly two millennia ago, knew about you? You're not yet 50 years old. This is verse 57. They said to him, and you've seen Abraham? 
Now we know you're delusional. Here's how Jesus responded. And I'll give you a little literal translation of the Greek. Before Abraham was, I, I am. The emphatic I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. And his opponents immediately picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because it sounded to them like he was referring to himself as the I am of Genesis chapter th- or Exodus chapter 3. There's another place in John 8 where it seems likely Jesus' I am points to Genesis 3. That's verse 24. Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. Now, that's a reference to what he just said in verse 21. If you don't believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. The phrase the NIV translates as, believe that I am the one I claim to be, is literally, if you do not believe that I, I am, you will die in your sins. Now, it seems to me John's gospel intentionally identifies Jesus with the God who revealed himself, revealed his name. See, I am sounds like the the word we believe is the name of God throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, which is translated often as Jehovah in the King James Bible. I am sounds just like Yahweh. That that. John is intentionally identifying Jesus with the God of the Old Testament. Now, as I said earlier, sometimes I am just means I am. In John 8, it means more, and I think we need to remain open to the possibility that some of the other I am statements in the Gospel of John identify Jesus with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who called Moses to deliver his people. That's what we're looking at for this series. The I am statements, usually with an object, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. But today we're looking at just the I am that I am statements. The first really significant one comes in in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. Chapter 4 is a terrific story. If you don't get the um, get ready for Sunday emails, sign up for those so you can get them and read the passage beforehand. Chapter 4 is just a terrific story, full of fascinating details and things for us to learn. Chapter starts with John and his disciples leaving Judea in the south and traveling to Galilee in the north. And for some reason, Jesus believes it's necessary to go through Samaria. Now, most Jews stayed out of Samaria on principle. But John says, this is verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. I suppose his disciples wondered about that. I mean, maybe if they were on their way to one of the big three religious feasts in Jerusalem and they got held up and they were late, they could justify going through Samaria. But they were leaving Jerusalem, not headed there. Why on earth Jesus thought it was necessary to go through Samaria, they couldn't understand. That's only the beginning of what they couldn't understand. They came to a village known as Sikar and stopped at the well, which tradition claimed the patriarch Jacob had dug. Jesus waited at the well while the disciples went into town to see if they could find lunch. That, that all of the disciples went into town suggests to me that they weren't comfortable going into a Samaritan village alone. They felt like they needed backup. Samaritans and the Jews did not get along with each other. While they were gone, so, so imagine in present day Israel, somebody 
leaving Jerusalem to go into the West Bank alone. That's the kind of thing we have going on here. While they're gone, a Samaritan woman came to draw water from the well, and Jesus began a conversation with her. That came as a shock to her. Jewish men didn't talk with Samaritans, especially Samaritan women. To a Jew, a Samaritan was a contagion, something to be avoided at almost any cost. Yet this guy is plainly Jewish, and he strikes up a conversation with her. That was the first shock. The second shock was even greater than the first. He asked her to draw him some water from the well to drink. Now, that might not sound shocking to you, but you could have knocked this woman over with a feather. So think Selma, Alabama, 1959. There's a water fountain. There's a sign right behind it that says whites only. And here's a white guy telling a black man, I'll go ahead and drink from it. Only it would be more like the white man offering a black man the first sip from his bottle of Coke. The black man would have wondered what this guy had up his sleeve. So did this woman. Some Jews would die of thirst before they drank from a cup a Samaritan had used. So the woman says this, verse 9, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus' answer raises the woman's curiosity even more. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, her response to that is snarky. So where are you, who didn't have enough foresight to bring anything to draw water with, going to get this living, think running, water? So they would call running water living water. Where are you going to get this running water? In verse 12, she goes further, and she asks Jesus, and I paraphrase, just who do you think you are? So there's a lot of smart-alecky stuff going on here. Just who do you think you are? You Jews are all alike. You think you're so special. It was the patriarch Jacob who gave us this well. Do you think you're better than him? Jesus says, the water from Jacob's well won't satisfy you. The water I give you will. It'll become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So at this turn in the conversation, spiritual turn if ever there was one, the woman begins to see where this is going. She says, and I would be surprised if her tone wasn't dripping with sarcasm, give me this water that quenches thirst forever, and then I won't have to keep coming out here to this well. Up to this point, I think, in the woman's mind, she's had the upper hand in this whole conversation. She's the one leading all the banner. But when Jesus takes another sharp turn in the conversation, she realizes she's in trouble. He he looks at her and says, go call your husband. So it's almost like saying, we don't want to scandalize anyone, a Jew and a Samaritan woman alone like this. Give your husband a call and have him join us. Now the woman who had been married five times says to Jesus, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. What she didn't say was that she was living with a guy, which wasn't accepted and wasn't acceptable. That might explain why the woman is at the well at midday. So people didn't go to draw water at midday. Drawing water was hard work and heavy carrying it back. And midday in Sikar was 100 degrees, maybe more. So she came when nobody was around. It may have been that the other women who came together at the cool of the day didn't like her didn't trust her, enjoyed gossiping about her. 
back in chapter 2, end of chapter 2, John says about Jesus that he doesn't need anyone to tell him what's in a person because he knows what's in a person. We see that playing out here. We also see it playing out in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. But here he says to the woman, this is verse 17 and 18, you're right when you say you have no husband. Fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now isn't your husband. What you've said is just now is quite true. Um, or finally, you've said something true. John wants us to know that Jesus gets people. He can see through all the smoke they blow and all the masks they wear and see what they are on the inside. He's just like God who said, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we may find that unsettling. You can't play Jesus. You can't pull a fast one on him. Now, I've known people who could talk circles around me and leave my head spinning. They couldn't do that with Jesus. He tears down the pretense and peels away the layers of falsehood and deals with the real person. See, he can do that because he, he doesn't try to win arguments. He tries to win people. And not their admiration, still less their admission of defeat like we do. He tries to win their souls, their persons, who they are. For people who aren't real and don't want to be, that's unnerving. But that's the way it has to be. Because Jesus will move heaven and earth to save the worst of sinners, redeem their lives and make them new, but he'll not budge an inch to save a lie. Nothing false will survive the judgment, including people. When the new creation is realized, the real will be all that remains. That means we must be real. No posing, no false fronts, only our true selves can be saved. A false self can't be saved, won't be saved. Jesus pushed this woman out of her shadowy comfort zone into the clear light of reality. And from this point on in the conversation, there's no more sarcasm. She says, verse 19, I can see you're a prophet. No more banter, but now she attempts a religious misdirection. People have tried that on me many times. So I recognize it when I read it here. They try to, to control the conversation by introducing some theological idea, pleasantry, or maybe some biblical controversy. You know, where did Cain get his wife? How can the Bible teach a six-day creation when science has proven the earth is millions of years old? And it's all a smokescreen. It's a diversion. They don't really care. The answer would make no difference to them, though they might want to think that they care because... They're usually the person who is most deceived. The woman tries that with Jesus. She says, we Samaritans believe you should worship on Mount Gerizim. But you Jews say the place to worship is Jerusalem. There's a big, long history behind that. That was a burning issue between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews had actually come into Samaria and destroyed their temple. And the Samaritans had 
had responded by sneaking into the Jewish temple at Passover time and polluting it by sacrificing a pig in it so that they couldn't celebrate Passover. So there's this big thing going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. And this woman expected Jesus as a Jew to get hot under the collar and thunder, Jerusalem is the place to worship. He didn't. Instead, he said, it's not going to matter. The where isn't important. And that's because, as we saw last week in John chapter 1, Jesus has become the meeting place between humans and God. When it comes to worship, it's not where you are, but it's who you're with that counts. At this point, the woman has run out of rabbit trails. So this woman is really sharp. I mean, she's so clever. But now she just run out of places to hide. One morning years ago, my, my wife Karen woke me up, and she was like, I could tell something was wrong. She said there was an animal in the kitchen. So I went in the kitchen, and I saw this thing between the refrigerator and the wall. And, and I didn't know what it was. It was about the size of a rat, I think, but I, I didn't know what it was. So I grabbed a broom, and I forced it out, and it tried running on the slippery floor. But I used the broom. I just... When it went this way, I moved it back this way. When it went that way, I moved it back this way. And I directed it out onto the veranda where it jumped and sailed down about 12 feet and landed on the driveway and scuttered off to a tree. It was a flying squirrel. I'd never seen one before. So I had seen another one in the same house on another occasion later, and I knew what it was, but that time I didn't know. Well, the, the woman in our story must have felt like that poor squirrel. She tries to escape this way, and that and irony, sarcasm, religious misdirection. And Jesus just keeps bringing her back to her true self and to him. That's the way it must be. Our true self face to face with the true man. It's only in the light of his face that we begin to see our faces truly. Woman doesn't have any more places to hide. She weakly says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. The Samaritans called the Messiah Taheb. When the Taheb comes, he'll explain it all to us. Now, here it comes. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. The Messiah. That is remarkable for all kinds of reasons. One, this is the first time Jesus has said plainly that he's the Messiah. In the last chapter, when he met Nicodemus, he didn't say anything so direct as this. He hasn't said anything as direct as this with his own disciples. But here in Samaria, to a Samaritan, whom Jews considered to be inferior to themselves in every way, Jesus announces that he's the Messiah. Even more remarkable than that, he announces his Messiahship first, first time, to a woman. Jewish women were considered inferior to men. In the first century, it was part of a Jewish man's daily devotions to pray, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. But if a Jewish woman was treated as an inferior, a Samaritan woman was treated as an untouchable, a contagion, a source of contamination 
all through the Gospels, and we don't realize this because we are so historically ignorant, all through the Gospels, Jesus treated women like people. He treated people of other ethnicities as though they mattered. Do you realize that his birth was first announced to a woman? His messiahship was first announced to a woman. His resurrection was first announced to a woman. But that's not the only remarkable thing here. This is one of Jesus' emphatic I am statements. Without an object, it's not I am the gate, I am the shepherd. Here it's just I, I am. So John translates what Jesus says into Greek that way. I, I am the one speaking to you. The I am is already emphatic due to the use of the pronoun and the verb together, as we mentioned at the beginning. And by placing it in the sentence before the verb, it becomes even more emphatic. I am. But that's not all. Jesus' favorite Old Testament book was Isaiah. He quotes it or alludes to it regularly, over and over again. In Isaiah 52, which speaks of the suffering servant who will bring salvation in the sight of all nations, God says, therefore my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. In the Greek translation of Isaiah, which was available to Jesus and to John. What we have literally is where it says, yes, it is I. It is I am him who speaks, who is speaking. In other words, it's what we have here. That's the line Jesus uses to introduce himself to this woman, to introduce his messiahship. So Jesus introduces himself as the Messiah, which, like the Greek translation that we know, Christ, means anointed one. Why was he called that? Who got anointed? Two kinds of people got anointed. Kings and priests. In the first century, to speak of the Christ was another way of saying the king who is coming. And this king is not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the Samaritans and of the whole world. So let me introduce you to the king. The king who can see right through you. The king who can save you. The king who suffers and dies for you. His name is Jesus. When the disciples return, John says they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. You bet they were. And a Samaritan woman at that. But no one, John adds, asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? In Greek, their question what do you want is literally, what do you seek? Jesus doesn't answer their unspoken question, but if he had, he would have said in the words of 20, verse 23, I am seeking people who will worship my Father in spirit and in truth. That's what my Father seeks, and that's what I seek. And guess what? In this woman that everyone scorns, I found one. 
This is Jesus the seeker who had to go through Samaria to find an unlikely worshiper in an unlikely place. This is Jesus, the one who sees us for who we really are and who we really can be. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the meeting place between humans and God. This is Jesus who never looks down on people because of their race or their ethnicity or their gender, but always helps people look up to his Father in heaven. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we were in a liturgical church right now, the response to that is praise be to God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, astound us by who you are, by the depth of your compassion, by the intensity of your light, by the power of your truth. All given to us in the person of Jesus, our Lord.